Good morning. Really good to be here. Oh, I'm in Psalms. Great book, but that's not where we are. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 4. We got through most of chapter 3 uh, last week. Um, yeah, we, really, we really pretty much touched on all of it. I see one issue there that I'd like to go back and talk about a little more, but um, nope, we're on to chapter 4. So, Last verse, though, of um, chapter 3, so we just kind of keep it in mind as we look at chapter 4, because um, I think it's just easy to make that mistake. Right? We'll read a chapter and... We kind of go into it thinking it's standing alone. We just don't want to make that mistake. Chapter 4, no surprise, follows chapter 3. And it's connected with chapter 3. And what just happened at the end of chapter 3 was this announcement, this picture that Peter gave us of where Jesus is now. Jesus, who has gone, so this is the last verse of chapter 3, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So completely vindicated. After, what? The greatest injustice of all time. The one innocent man, the one God-man crucified on the cross. Like, that's his life in the flesh. Where is he now? Completely vindicated. That unjust suffering, what we found in 1 Peter, it has redemptive power. Just like Christ went through this unjust suffering and we were redeemed. He's done the same for us. He's passed on his work that when we'll move through it, and many in the audience that 1 Peter's writing to are going through it, Unjust suffering, and he's saying, look, be like Christ. He went through this, and there was redemptive power, and Jesus Christ went through this unjust suffering in the flesh, and he is vindicated. That that's how it always ends. And so now he moves into chapter 4, and he says, since therefore, We know what therefore is, right? It's following right after. Same with that word since. Like, what's right above it? This is following. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way of thinking, what's he mean? Well, there's this anticipation as we follow Jesus that we're going to suffer in this world. So that's our way of thinking. And he says, arm yourself with it. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are, just, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him 
who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Wow. All right. I think we can start, and if we just leave this meeting with one line in mind, It would come right from the beginning of that chapter. Arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. Arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. And what was Jesus' way of thinking? What did he anticipate he was going to go through? For his entire ministry, he knew it. That he was going to to suffer in the flesh. That that's what was going to happen. He was kind of telling his disciples the whole way because he knew this is going to be a surprise to you. But this is what I came to do. He knew he was going to bear the sins of all of us. That he was going to go through unjust suffering. That this would not be the end. But that this would be the end in the flesh. That in this sphere, in this lifetime, this is what he anticipated. 
This was his mindset. So that even as he's moving before Pilate and he knows, I'm real close now. He can tell Pilate, like, you're acting like you're in control. I know who's in control. Jesus said, you only have authority if my Father in heaven gave it to you. That that last verse of chapter 4, where it says, entrust yourself to your creator, Jesus modeled this too. That this is what he anticipated in this life when he was here. We get tricked a little bit. It's so easy for us to think this life is all there is because it's all we've seen except what the Lord shows to us. We know, wait, Christ is risen, there's more now. But in this life, we we arm ourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. There will be suffering and we want it to be unjust suffering. Peter says, Don't get into the meddling and the murdering and all that stuff where you bring upon yourself justified suffering. Don't go there. That's not the mindset. Don't, like, bring just suffering on yourself and then we say, oh, see, I'm suffering. No, no, it's different. We're going to suffer in this flesh, in this time period, in this lifetime. That's our mindset as believers. We're following the one who modeled that. But we know it just doesn't end that way. Okay, why? Why does Peter say, arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking? Because that's what we're going to leave here with. We're going to arm ourselves with this. We're anticipating that in this life, there'll be suffering. Unjust suffering. And we do this, why? Well, Jesus' way of thinking keeps us in the will of God. That's right there in those first six verses. We have a funny way of thinking about the will of God. Um, I, I don't know if it's just like a Western church thing or everywhere, but oftentimes when I hear like, oh, what's the will of God? It's like it's some mystery that we can never know. And, and certainly there's, there's some aspect of to the mystery of the will of God. But as Peter talks about it here, he's saying, oh no, it's pretty plain. Don't go back to the way you used to live. <laughs> like, here's the will of God. No more, you know, sexual morality, no more debauchery, no more drunkenness, no more idolatry. Like, you all know what it is. Don't go back to it. But you need to arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. That there's going to be suffering in this world. And if you will adopt Jesus' way of thinking, Jesus' way of thinking will keep us in the will of God. When I first became, uh, I don't know if I could say a believer, or at least when I had recommitted my life to Christ, just had moved out to Southern California. It was not my plan to recommit my life to Jesus Christ. It was my plan to go find, boy, what everybody was doing to have fun. It's what I was doing in college, and it's what I wanted to do there. And, and, and then I just met a group of people who loved Jesus, began to think about Jesus, and realized, wow, he's risen from the dead. This actually really changes everything. He really does love me. I really can be forgiven. 
Jesus, I'm with you. A lot of things changed immediately. I thought everything had changed, but I realized around 30, I was about 22 then, I realized around 30 that, whoa, not everything's changed. I still need to change some things. But a lot changed at that beginning. Enough so that when my best friend from back in Boston came out to California, we really had not much in common. It was surprising. It was surprising and hard for him. And it was surprising and hard for me. Because he was a friend. So when he came out, uh, the first thing I did (laughs) was tell him all about Jesus. I had to. Uh, For one, I just wanted to because I love him. But the other reason I had to is because he kept asking me to go do the things we used to do. And I didn't do them anymore. So I'd say, no, no, I don't do those things anymore. And here's why. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. Hey, come to these groups. Meet these friends of mine. And so he did. But he didn't believe. So the way we were living, it was weird to him. Almost exactly like those verses, those first six verses. It was surprising to him. Like, why aren't you coming along the way you used to? What happened was just sad. You know, he he was there for probably about a month, and then he moved back. He just moved back to Boston because he'd come out, he really only knew me there, and then I wasn't the same, so it almost felt like he didn't know me anymore. And that's just kind of how it landed. But it was helpful to know that as I was going through that, that that's actually anticipated. In scripture, that there is a temptation, like, oh, I don't want to hurt my friend's feeling, or I'll lose my friend. Maybe I'll go back. Maybe I'll go back to that old way of life. I mean, plus, he's kind of upset with me. There's a piece of him who's upset with me. I don't want him to be. But what we're hearing here as Peter's writing to his readers is no, no, no. Anticipate that. Anticipate that. That you must arm yourself with Jesus' way of thinking. That there will be suffering in this world. I mean, there's just going to be. And really those first six verses are how we encounter the non-believing world around us. That it's not that we hate them, but what we're going to find is there's a wall that's going up. And they don't like that you won't join them sometimes. And they certainly will not like what you're saying either explicitly or implicitly. Which when my friend said, hey, come join me here, the reason I didn't want to join them there is because I know how that lifestyle ends. And he's still in it. And so there's a clear communication to this friend who I love for years, good friend, that if you don't get out of it, it ends terrible. In this life, even more so when Christ returns. If we don't anticipate that sort of thing, we'll be tempted to leave God's will and go back. And we can't. There's another piece of this that I want to bring up, which is if we're going through life 
if I'm going through life and I'm not encountering any resistance with the non-believing world around me, I think I have to ask myself, why? I'm supposed to be encountering some sort of resistance and suffering. The best answer I can get to, and I'm not eager for unjust suffering or any kind of suffering any more than you are, but in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, always be prepared to give the reason for your hope, for your hope in Christ. Be prepared to share Christ with the non-believing world around you. The way to avoid resistance or suffering on account of being a Christian, the way to do it has been the same since the beginning. Don't open your mouth. Don't say a word about Jesus and no one has a problem. If my buddy had come back out and I believed and just kind of, well, don't ever bring up Jesus, we probably would have been all right. Peter's actually assuming that you'll be prepared to give you a reason for believing and that you'll actually give it, not just prepare, that you will get opportunities to. We're being called. And I'm not sure this has happened in my life enough. In fact, I've come to the conclusion it hasn't. And I actually don't know if I've ever been in a church where I thought it was actually happening in that church, any church I've ever attended that it was happening in the church, that is sharing the good news with the outside world. Now, I'm not talking about just bringing them to church. I mean, like, you have contacts, and you're constantly praying and asking God to lead. How do you share? How do you share the truth with them? I've never seen a church that does it as much as I see it in the New Testament. That I think all of us have room to grow, myself included. And that if we'll be faithful in what Peter's assuming is going on, right? That's why he's saying be prepared to share the reason for your hope. That if we'll do that, we'll actually begin to understand better these passages on unjust suffering. Have you ever heard anyone say that the church doesn't really go through much suffering in America? Like even we, we're like, sometimes we'll just give thanks for that. Thank you that we're allowed to do this or do that. And everybody's so excited. I wonder if we're actually just more faithful to share. Just prayerfully. I'm not talking about forcing any conversation. Prayerfully asking, Father, who do you want me to share with today? In the next two weeks, or bring people into my life who are ready to hear it, that if we'll do this, I think what we'll find is that um, unjust suffering will become a little more common. And these verses will feel a little more real. That's what I suspect. You know, Barner did a survey that in um, 1995... He went out to believers and asked, how many of you have the gift of evangelism? 1995, not that long ago. 4% said, oh, I think I have the gift of evangelism. By the way, there's plenty of debate out there if that's even a gift. Clearly, Peter's assuming everybody's doing it. 
took another survey. I don't know exactly how many years later, if it was 10 or 25 or somewhere in between, and it had gone from 4% to 1%. <laughs> Here's my theory. Um, I'm not even sure it's a gift anyhow, but if it is, uh, we don't actually know if we have the gift uh, until we start sharing. <laughs> it would almost be like asking someone who's never taught to say, do you have the gift of teaching? You don't know until you do it. Jesus said, right, we're throwing out seed, and here's what will happen. Some seed will grow up and produce a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. As far as I can tell, everyone's told to go share, right? Go spread the seed far and wide. And don't just share with, like, one person that's on your mind. Like, everybody God brings to mind. Share with everybody. And here's how you know, uh, 160, 30-fold, Jesus doesn't condemn any of it, right? Like, how do we know if, as a result of sharing, 100 people will come to faith, or 60, or 30? We don't know. That's when we just see, like, hey, who's he bringing to us? And who's working? Whose life is he working in? The idea is we just share with everybody he leads us to share with. First Peter doesn't make much sense. Hard to relate to. Unless we're doing what the readers in First Peter were doing. Hey, I'm with you. I don't know anyone who's comfortable sharing. I think everybody gets uncomfortable. All we're saying is we're together in this. I love that it says arm yourselves, plural. We're together in this. We encourage one another. We pray for each other. We're listening. And we're just doing what he asks us to do next. That's really the first six verses only. (laughs) What does he get into next? You know, those first six verses are kind of, look, if you'll arm yourselves with Jesus' way of thinking, anticipating that this life's actually going to be hard, it's going to be hard to follow Jesus, we'll stand out, people will be surprised that we don't join them in the debauchery we used to do. But that's how we live with those who don't believe. The next, what is it, 7 through 11, is how do we live amongst ourselves who do believe. I found these verses interesting too. Arming ourselves with Jesus' way of thinking keeps us loving each other. It's actually talking about serving. Often when we talk about serving, I think what comes to mind is serving and loving the community outside the church. And for sure that's the case too. In James he says, if you see someone in need and you have means to help them, and you don't, how can the love of God be in you? I think that's talking about those outside the church as well, for sure. But most of the verses that talk about serving and loving, as far as I can tell, it seems like every time I read it, it's talking about serving and loving those in the church. That this is actually a witness to the world outside too, It's almost like if you'll come in here and trust Jesus, you won't believe how well he'll lead us to love each other. And it's not just in 1 Peter 4. He's already said this in in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. 
It says, having purified your souls by your obedience. Remember way back at the beginning, we were born again, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. For what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's towards each other. Hmm. Application. I find the greatest barrier in my own life to loving those in the church, those around me, is the constant critiquing and over-evaluating that happens in my head all the time. None towards you guys, of course. Here's when I knew it was out of control. I remember meeting with Dick Woodward, greatest man I ever met, most mature Christian man I've ever known. And I was in meeting with him, like every Monday or every Tuesday, I even forget the day now. But I remember being done or in the midst of a meeting, and I found myself critiquing Dick. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you've like hit an all-time low here. That you can do this to everybody. Here's what goes on in my head. Like, I see people's blind spots, and I think, wow, how insightful. Like, look at I see their blind spots. They don't even see them themselves. I see them. And then you want to focus on them. It's crazy. This morning, I got up to this. We had a microwave that's only like eight months old. So it was like uh, a new microwave. It, it's really clean. I've never really had a clean microwave before. <laughs> so super clean. And today I opened it up and there's like a little piece of food in there. And I was just like, Karen. <laughs> like in my head, I start critiquing. My wife is amazing. Okay, if I'm going to choose to focus on that little crumb in the microwave and start critiquing her, can I just say, that's not from the Lord. That's not from the Lord. And not only that, those little things, those little critiques, and we think just because they're, oh, it's true, like, like, maybe that is a little messy, I don't know. But just because it's true, it doesn't mean you zero in on it or that God's bringing it to mind because what it does is it actually gets in the way of loving her well. We do that in our communities. I hear myself doing it. I hear other people doing it. Can I put up a verse that I pray every day? It's Psalm 19, verse 12 and 13. And it says, who can discern his own errors? So this is a prayer. This is the psalmist. He's praying. Say, Lord, who can discern their own errors? We all have blind spots. How am I supposed to see my blind spots? I can't see them. That's why there are blind spots, right? So who can discern them? Lord, will you just forgive me of what I don't know I'm doing? That's wrong. Like, forgive me of that. And then he differentiates between those intentional sins. Like, keep me from presumptuous or intentional sins. That if you'll forgive me of this, my blind spots and my intentional sin, or keep me from intentional sin, then, then I'm free. Free of great transgressions. Then I'm like blameless before you. 
I pray this prayer every day because I need to. Do I really think that the people who I'm trying to love within his community don't have the right to this same prayer? How many of us don't have blind spots? That's like a bad question. We can't even answer it. It's almost like we're just assuming we do. So when we see somebody else's, we have to extend grace. So what's the action? Does it mean you never speak into it? No, I think there's sometimes when you do. But here's, for any of you who feel like you over-critique, and that's me, my fear is not that I won't speak into someone else's fault. <laughs> that's not my fear. My fear is I'll do it too fast. I think we just have to extend the same grace to each other. And when we see people's blind spots, I don't think I have to be like, hey, aren't I a genius? I think you're really falling short here. How about just trying to prayerfully help them? How about when critical thoughts come in my head? Dick Woodward used to say, who told you? That there's really only two voices. Either God told you, or the enemy told you. Either it's truth, or it's a lie. And if that thought comes into my head, and I immediately want to critique, that is absolutely not from the Lord. Because when the Lord sees us in our blind spots, he's kind. And he's just trying to help us move. And I don't think it would help anybody if I just blurted out every fault that I see. And it wouldn't help me if I thought that's all people were doing with me. I think we need to figure out just how we might love each other even better than we're already doing. And can I tell you, this group has been an enormous encouragement to me, this Friday morning group, I was just telling Claude on the way in, Claude gave me a ride in my car, my wife's car broke down. This is an easy group for me to love, easy. I think we want to think of that person who's not easy for us to love and start evaluating what's up in me. Why is it so easy to critique that person? And start giving more thanks for who they are, for the faith that you see in them. Let's resist those critical thoughts that come flying in. And let's love each other well. So arming ourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. It'll keep us in the will of God. It'll keep us loving each other. And, and there's one other thing it'll do. We see it in those last, that last paragraph. It'll keep us from being surprised. That if we know that in this flesh, in this life, that we're actually going to go through suffering, then when it happens, we're not so shocked. I don't know about you, I I feel like as many times as I've heard this, I still get shocked. Like someone gives me a criticism and it hurts, and it's like, whoa, why? So surprised, you know? I think the idea is, no, no, it'll remove that surprise. I mean, can you imagine if there was a soldier, say a World War II soldier behind enemy lines, 
who became surprised that the enemy was resisting and attacking him. What would you do if a soldier behind enemy lines came up and said, boy, I'm so surprised, like they're shooting at me. Like, the idea is, well, what do you, no, 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 that's just not surprising. And so it's the same as we follow after Jesus. That there is an enemy, that's why we see evil. That while Christ has won, it guarantees his resurrection, that it's going to end. Everything actually has been subjected under his feet. He's going to return and finally judge evil, all evil. All those who have been following Satan, because Satan's trying to lead the whole world astray. He's going to take care of it. It's done. But till then, we're on rescue missions. And we're behind enemy lines. So we're just not surprised by it. But it lands on an ending, this chapter, that's really not intuitive. So knowing all this, we're not surprised. What does Peter tell all the believers who are going through this unjust suffering? What does he tell them to do? Rejoice. Rejoice. The idea that We're suffering doesn't mean we're woe is me, although it's hard. That's why we come together, right? We're trying to encourage each other, remind each other the truth. Hang in there. There's redemptive power. It ends good. But on the way, rejoice. Why? Because if you're in Nazi Germany, World War II, and you're being shot at, here's the good news. You're not a Nazi. You're on the right side. So... That's what we're saying, that when we feel the world coming against us, good news. You're right where you're supposed to be. Rejoice. Matthew 25 says the day's coming when Jesus is going to judge. Like everyone's coming before him and he's separating the sheep and the goats. And we want to be in the sheep. (laughs) We want to inherit eternal life. We want to be with him forever. And when we're going through unjust suffering because of the name of Jesus Christ, it's good news. It's evidence that we're actually fighting the right fight. So Peter says, rejoice. I pray that we can leave this morning armed with Jesus' way of thinking. And apply all the truths that Peter laid out there in chapter 4. Amen. Have a wonderful week.